Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello everyone, welcome back. In our last episode, we took a look at Mosiah 26 and the complications that are popping up in the Nephite society as a result of the introduction of the church. We talked about what Mormon calls the rising generation and the persecutions of the church that are resulting from their pushback against the older generation's beliefs. It's clear that Mormon is framing this mounting conflict as intergenerational. This rising generation was too young at the time of King Benjamin's speech for his words to really have an effect, and now they don't believe in the coming of Christ or the reality of the resurrection. These are the central organizing beliefs of the church as a confessional community. It's dangerous to draw direct parallels between ancient events and modern circumstances. So what I'm about to say is very superficial, but I'm going to say it anyways. One challenge facing the modern church is the issue of engagement in the rising generations. Some studies estimate about 50% of millennials have disengaged with the church. There are all kinds of reasons that have emerged for that trend, but the trend is undeniable. It's not even exclusive to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's something that churches all over the world are experiencing. I'm not going to try and diagnose it here. But more than anything, I just want to recognize that it's happening. And that while the trend is definitely strong right now, the phenomenon of the rising generation rejecting the religion, or at the very least, the form the religion has taken in the previous generation, is nothing new. In fact, if you study how religion moves from one generation to the next, you see that the religion of the children never quite looks the same as the religion of the parents. And that's okay. Right now, in the Book of Mormon, this intergenerational conflict seems really bad. Alma is needing to regulate the church. Families are being divided. Nephite society as a whole is fracturing, and the church is being persecuted. But it's not a reason to panic. And if we don't use our privilege as readers to put this in the broader context, we'll miss any lessons that might be available to guide us through our current intergenerational struggles. Now, one last note before we jump in. We are about to read about an incredibly impactful event. So impactful, in fact, that Mormon thinks we need to think about it again and again. So while this time through we're going to focus on the intergenerational aspects of this story, later on we'll be thinking about it in other terms. Alright, with that introduction, let's get into Mosiah 27, 1-7. At the end of chapter 26... The church was being persecuted, but they were enduring it well through self-correction, constant prayer, and practicing gratitude in all things. But things keep on getting worse, and Mormon tells us, The church began to murmur and complain to their leaders concerning the matter. The believers go to Alma for help, who goes to Mosiah in their behalf, and Mosiah consults with his own priests. That's interesting. Both Alma and Mosiah have priests. And all of this leads to the creation of new laws. Here we see more examples of how Nephite society has had to shift in order to accommodate the introduction of the church. 
As a comparison to Alma's experience in the last chapter in needing to learn how to regulate the church in new ways, now Mosiah needs to learn how to regulate the people generally in new ways. So Mosiah sends out new laws restricting the persecution of the church, and it sounds like it's Alma who sends out a strict command to the churches that there should be no persecutions among them, that there should be an equality among all men. We've seen the value of equality pop up before with Alma in the church, back when Alma refused to become king in the land of Helam, and it remains central to their community. I want to read verses 3 through 5 in their entirety, because Mormon does such a great job of showing how a single value can influence every aspect of a community. And there was a strict command throughout all the churches that there should be no persecutions among them, that there should be an equality among all men, that they should let no pride nor haughtiness disturb their peace, laboring with their own hands for their support. Yea, and all their priests and teachers should labor with their own hands for their support, in all cases, save it were in sickness or in much want, and doing these things, they did abound in the grace of God. That's remarkable. I'm going to focus in on one specific phrase here that caught my eye that they should let no pride nor haughtiness disturb their peace. There are so many things that that could mean. It could mean that they shouldn't let others' vanity distract them from living in a way that will preserve their own peaceful lives. It could also be that Alma recognizes the danger that presents itself to a community of believers when they're presented with the opposition from people who are so obviously wicked and aggressive. There can be a sense of superiority and self-righteousness that can overwhelm the sense of constant prayer and gratitude that is really sustaining them throughout this period. Both of these interpretations have their value and certainly their application in our day. The actions of others can distract us from the lives we should be living. The distraction can be directed outward and inward. Outwardly, the actions of others can preoccupy us with sorrow, concern, or justified anger. These can be totally legitimate reactions, but when taken to the extreme, can serve to distract us from living in a way that promotes peace in our lives. Inwardly, our sense of chosenness or righteousness can cause us to justify terrible behavior. Some of the worst crimes in the history of humanity have been perpetrated by people who felt certain that they were the righteous ones. Okay, while both interpretations have their value... I think we can use the text to guide us in how to interpret this warning against the power of pride and haughtiness to disturb our peace. Immediately following this command, Mormon adds qualifying statements about esteeming one's neighbors as oneself and laboring with one's own hands. This pride and haughtiness, it seems, was targeting laziness and a particular type of laziness, the laziness that can come with wealth and power. Alma's people have seen firsthand the dangers of an elite class of rulers being sustained by the labors of others. Alma was part of that elite class when he served as one of Noah's priests. Now, by putting those types of asymmetrical relationships in check, the church did abound in the grace of God. Are we not all beggars? The regulatory efforts of Mosiah and Alma again begin to restore the peace. The people begin to prosper and expand throughout the region. Mormon tells us the Lord did visit them and prosper them, and they became a large and wealthy people. Okay, y'all know what's coming next. We've seen this pattern too many times to be ignorant. In fact, 
Perhaps instead of reading Mormon's description of the prosperity of the people as a breath of fresh air, we should read each description as a warning for what's about to come. We all want prosperity and peace, but it seems that we also have a human need of struggle. And in verses 8 through 17, we see why it's difficult to walk the line between the two. Mormon begins by telling us, Now the sons of Mosiah were numbered among the unbelievers, and one of the sons of Alma was numbered among them, he being called Alma after his father. Nevertheless, he became a very wicked and idolatrous man, and he was a man of many words, and would speak much flattery to the people. Therefore he led many of the people to do after the manner of his iniquities, and he became a great hinderment to the prosperity of the church, stealing away the hearts of the people, causing much dissensions among them, giving a chance for the enemy of God to exercise his power over them. Mormon first tells us that the sons of Mosiah were unbelievers, but it seems clear that it's Alma, Alma the Younger that is, who is the real problem. Let's take a minute, put these men in context, and maybe push back against some of the ways that we've come to imagine these characters. First, let's remember that Alma may be significantly older than the sons of Mosiah. He might actually be closer to Mosiah's age. He could be old enough to have been born in the land of Nephi or in the early years of the land of Helam. Alma's people arrive in Zarahemla around 118 BC, and about 27 years passes between their arrival and the end of the book of Mosiah. So all of this is happening over three decades, and Alma could be in his 30s or beyond at the time of this story. On the other hand, if Alma the Younger was born later in his father's life, say after they arrived in Zarahemla, he might still be in his 20s during this period. Why does it matter how old he was? Mormon doesn't seem to think it's important for us to know. Well, it probably doesn't matter that we know. It matters that we don't assume that we know. When thinking about Alma and the sons of Mosiah, we tend to think of adolescent boys who just need to get through their teenage years and go on their missions at 18 and then all will be well. I think that image looms so large in our minds because those teenage years can be treacherous and this story can serve to bring hope to those parents with wandering teens. But if we assume that's what the Book of Mormon is telling us, we very well might close ourselves off to other lessons it offers. What if they aren't teenagers? What if they are in their 20s and 30s or 40s? Does that change the lessons that we can glean here? Are the 20s and 30s any less treacherous than adolescence? I think we might assume they are, but I'm not so sure. In fact, returning to that intergenerational theme of our introduction, millennials aren't teenagers. Millennials are mostly in their 30s, pushing 40s. Do the scriptures offer any guidance there? However old these men were, and Mormon calls Alma the Younger a man, it sounds like they are formidable. They are engaging and vain, and they know what buttons to push, and it's working. Sometimes fracture points are tested simply by life, by the circumstances of mortality, by some natural event. But sometimes they're tested by people who know where to put the pressure, and that seems to be the case here. Mormon tells us that Alma and the sons of Mosiah, remember we're talking about Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni here, were going about trying to destroy the church. These are men with status, 
privilege. They have a platform. Amma's father is the high priest. And Mosiah, the father of the other four, is the king. They're mounting a challenge to the power of the church and the kingdom. It's during all of this that an angel appears and descends, as it were, in a cloud. And he spoke, as it were, with a voice of thunder, which caused the earth to shake, upon which they stood. And so great was their astonishment that they fell to the earth and understood not the words which he spake unto them. That's quite a description. Let's think about it for a minute. I want to set aside the angel for a moment and focus on the other elements, the descriptions that Mormon gives. There's a cloud. What kind of cloud? Light and fluffy? I doubt it. That's not the type of cloud that brings thunder. A voice can be booming or thunderous, but Mormon says this was a voice of thunder. That may be a different kind of thing. This angel was like lightning, his voice like a thunderclap. Have you ever been close to a lightning strike? It's not rolling thunder that you hear. It's an explosion. Boom. I went to high school in Hawaii a school called Kahuku, Red Raiders for Life, and we didn't have indoor halls. One day, I was walking out of English class, and lightning struck right above, and the world shook. Car alarms went off, people fell down. That seems to be closer to what's happening here. They are in the middle of a storm. Now, imagine this kind of storm rising up out of nowhere. You might think the world was ending, There's actually an analogy for this elsewhere in the Book of Mormon. Can you think of it? In fact, I think Mormon means for us to see it. This is like a mini version of what will happen when Jesus is killed. There are earth-shattering storms, clouds so thick they can obscure everything, and a voice like thunder that they can't understand at first. What's the point of putting these men through this? What's the point of the signs of Christ's death? There are a number of answers that we could give, but I think one is that this experience has to go all the way through them. It has to become their realist real. They must think that they're going to die. And at that point, what can all of their idolatry and vanity do for them? They have to know that they are in need of saving. When Alma and the sons of Mosiah finally understand the angel, Alma is the one who is called to account for his efforts to destroy the church. Again, suggesting that Alma is the leader here. The angel says, Behold, the Lord hath heard the prayers of his people, and also the prayers of his servant, Alma, who is thy father. For he has prayed with much faith concerning thee, that thou mightest be brought to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, for this purpose, have I come to convince thee of the power and authority of God, that the prayers of his servant might be answered according to their faith. Alma, that is, Alma the elder, the father, is wise. He doesn't pray for his son's agency to be overridden. He prays for it to be engaged. Bring him to the knowledge of the truth. Then he can make his own choice. There's incredible faith in that prayer. Not only that, Alma the Elder knows what true repentance looks like. He had to go through the process himself. This is how Mormon describes Alma's own moment of change. And now it came to pass that Alma who had fled from the servants of King Noah, repented of his sins and iniquities, and went about privately among the people, and began to teach the words of Abinadi. That's a very quick way of describing what was likely a difficult process. 
What pain did he experience as he saw his own sins in the light of the self-sacrificing power of Jesus Christ? Alma the Elder sees that his son has incredible potential. He remembers watching him grow up filled with light and hope. He acutely feels the pain of watching that light begin to diminish. And he knows that for his son to regain that light, it can't simply be a return to a time when he was innocent and reflexively obedient to his father. It will be a mature series of choices over a long period of time. There are so many lessons in this prayer about how to think about the ways to bring people back into the church, particularly when they are members of our own family, and particularly when they are mature adults. Getting back to the words of the angel, the issue is helping Alma to be brought to a knowledge of the truth. So the angel connects the aspects of this dramatic experience to the truth, that is, to the power of God. He then tells Alma something that we might not expect. Now I say unto thee, Go and remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of Helam and in the land of Nephi, and remember how great things the Lord has done for them, for they were in bondage, and he has delivered them. Why is it that the angel wants Alma to remember that specifically? Of all the things that he could have directed his attention to, he wants him to remember how the Lord delivered Alma's fathers from the land of Helam and of Nephi. We may not be able to guess the angel's intent here, but we can know what Alma thinks was behind this command. Years later, talking to his own son Helaman and recounting this very experience, Alma says, My son, give ear to my words, for I swear unto you that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. That's the Lehite covenant. I would that ye should do as I have done in remembering the captivity of our fathers. For they were in bondage, and none could deliver them except it was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he surely did deliver them in their afflictions. And now, O my son Helaman, behold, thou art in thy youth, and therefore I beseech thee that thou wilt hear my words and learn of me. For I do know that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and in their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. And I would not that you should think that I know of these things of myself, not of the temporal, but of the spiritual, not of the carnal mind, but of God. Now behold, I say unto you, if I had not been born of God, I should not have known these things. But God has, by the mouth of his holy angel, made these things known unto me, not of any worthiness of myself. Okay, let's use what we got to get at the words of the angel. The Lord's deliverance of the church in the land of Helam, and before that the land of Nephi, is really the founding of the church. It's like their first vision story. And to borrow from Alma's own words to his son Helaman, it's the story of how the church was born of God. Alma wants his son Helaman to know what Mormon wanted us to know back in Mosiah 23, that none could deliver them but the Lord their God, yea, even the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Alma also needs his son to know that he's drawing from his own experience with the delivering power of the suffering lamb. He's been delivered, and he needs Helaman to know what it is to be delivered or to be born of God. Now, from our ability to skip ahead to Alma 36, we see that the words of the angel become a guiding light for Alma's life. 
one that he wants to pass to his own son. But there's a more immediate and urgent need that Alma has, and the angel has just instructed Alma how to get through what's about to happen to him. The angel says, And now I say unto thee, Alma, go thy way and seek to destroy the church no more, that their prayers may be answered, and this even if thou wilt of thyself be cast off. This was the tipping point for Alma. Mormon doesn't focus on Alma's experience yet. He leaves that to Alma 36, so we don't want to go too far into it, but he essentially becomes lifeless and needs to be carried by his friends to his father. When his father heard what happened, Mormon tells us he rejoiced and gathered the people together so that they could witness the power of God in real time working in the life of his son. They made this a community event of prayer and fasting. Alma the Elder wants to make sure that the eyes of the people might be opened to see and know of the goodness and glory of God. Mormon tells us that the people fasted for two days and two nights. Later, Alma will say that he was lifeless for three days and three nights. But eventually, he stands up and he begins to speak. This is the man who was seeking to destroy the church. What does he have to say now? Alma says, I have repented of my sins and have been redeemed of the Lord. Behold, I am born of the Spirit. And the Lord said unto me, Marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, must be born again. They, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters, and thus they become new creatures. And unless they do this, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. What is it that sparked this change? Alma will describe the moment that sparked that change to Helaman, and it's the moment that he's at the greatest amount of pain and hopelessness, and this memory from his father breaks through, and his father is talking about the Son of God. And memory is a tricky thing. I wonder if the angel's words about remembering the deliverance of his fathers helped to spark that memory breaking through into Alma's hopelessness. It might very well be that as the angel was describing Alma's impending destruction, he was also giving him the seed that would blossom into his redemption. Alma the Younger's words to the people after waking up move from his personal experience of being taken from darkness to light to a global vision of Christ's grace and judgment to every creature of his creating. This global vision is enough to drive Alma and the sons of Mosiah into a life of ministry, and we'll see that it knows no bounds. Like Paul, after his experience on the road to Damascus, they are tireless in traveling, publishing, witnessing, preaching, and enduring in behalf of the gospel, initially working in the land of Zarahemla to repair the damage that they had done. But also, like Paul, their personal experience with redemption will cause them to look beyond the borders of their own nation in an inspired way. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a bit. For now, Mormon tells us that they did impart much consolation to the church, confirming their faith and exhorting them with long suffering and much travail to keep the commandments of God. The conversion of these men on the road to destruction looms large in the story. It helps to be able to trace their revolutionary vision of the gospel back to a single moment, but it's also a bit too simplistic. Alma and the sons of Mosiah weren't great because they saw an angel, 
but because of a lifetime of decisions that follow that experience. Mormon ends this chapter with a reference to a familiar verse, Isaiah 52, 7-10, And how blessed are they, for they did publish peace, they did publish good tidings of good, and they did declare unto the people that the Lord reigneth. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.